Okay, so I'm carrying on this week, um, following on the theme from last week, looking at the, particularly the role of women um, in, in the local church. And Tim looked at last week the whole thing that in um, Exodus, or not Exodus, Genesis 1.27, it says that men and women are both made in the image of God. And it takes actually men and women to reflect and demonstrate the glory of God and the character of God. And uh, as a local church, we don't want to be um, like a single parent family. And I know that some of you have, have, have brought up your kids in a single parent environment and you've done really, really, really well. Particularly mums who have had to be mum and dad. And we applaud you and say, just hearing your stories and the kids you brought up, you've done magnificently well as you've had to play the role often of both dad and mum. And uh, yeah, we applaud you and just felt God's grace on you. Just uh, Almost this morning, that's your situation. He doesn't want you to feel any condemnation about what what your household was like. And uh, that God would say, I saw your heart, that your desire wasn't to be single parent, but you wanted to bring up with mum and dad, and that wasn't what happened. And God says, there's no condemnation, and that she has been watching over your family, and I want to do your family good, and that you're to feel no guilt or shame, because you uh, brought up your children in a one-parent family, often because of circumstances or situations that, that were beyond your control. And God wants you to know that. He's always with you, and he's with your children too, if you're even in the middle of that right now. And there's a heart that the church is really the family of God. And, and then God doesn't really want his, his family just to be a one-parent family. He, he doesn't want the church just to be uh, a place where just dads raise up kids. He wants a family where there's mums and dads raising up spiritual children who grow up to become themselves mums and dads. And just like it takes in an ideal circumstance a mum and a dad in the church, it takes mums and dads. And uh, in looking at this, this stuff this morning, it's that we want men and women to bring their uniqueness of who they are in God to the table so that the family of God is strong and strengthened in all the vitality that God wants. And so Tim and I would say, yeah, we're called by God to be uh, fathers in the, in the family, often described as in other passages, elders. And our role is really to be empowering, releasing agents of the family. You know, that's, that's the desire of dads, as well as actually the desire of mums. Often you listen to your children's desires, don't you? Their plans and uh, what they've got on their heart, what they want to become. Because actually the heart of a mum and dad, the heart of a dad, is you want your children to go beyond you, don't you? In Both in the things of God, in the things of fulfilling their dreams and all those things. You want your kids to go beyond you. And often we, you want to be planning for the future, don't you? So they have an inheritance, they have impetus to help them fulfill all that's on their hearts. So the church is a big family and that Tim and I are fathers to be releasing agents um, into the family of God. And I want to talk about the, the role of women and particularly I want to talk about it in, with one specific application but I think it's much broader than that and the specific application is about Sunday mornings. 
and uh, it, would, it wouldn't have escaped your notice that it's Tim and I who do the majority of the teaching preaching. And that is actually intentional, because actually dads want to produce a culture and cultivate a culture. But also, we want to ask the question, does the Bible permit women to speak on a Sunday morning? And we want to answer that question this morning, because actually our conviction is, and the Bible says, be fully convinced. <laughs> you know, when, when Paul is saying, if you want, to call all day, you want to call this particular day holy, you can call it holy. If you want to call all days holy, call them all holy, but be fully convinced. And I think that's the call on all of us, to be fully convinced, to be consistent and be biblical. And so we want to be consistent, because it's interesting that in an environment like ours, we have um, women leading... Um, bubbles and junior church and leading uh, men in teams and setting the agenda. We have women leading worship. We would have uh, women, we'd be very happy for women to lead a, a mixed community group with men and women. Um, and we want to be consistent and we want to be biblical. And we've got women, we would say, who teach midweek, but we haven't had on a Sunday. And so we think, is that very consistent? Are we being, are we being consistent with this policy across the board. It's interesting talking to a friend of mine, and uh, I won't mention the denomination because I don't want to um, put down another denomination, but he said that when they looked at the whole thing of, um, I'm going to give it away, but the ordination of women, aren't I? When he, my friend Jonathan, Church of England, vicar, great guy, he's being commissioned in this Friday for Church of the Cross over in Thamesmead, he's going to do a great work there. But he said that when the Church of England began to debate the question of the role of women, he said actually what they tended to do in the environments that he was in, it was very much a sociological response to what was happening in society. So he said actually people didn't where he was, at least, I'm sure it wasn't in every meeting, didn't open the Bible and say, what's the conviction of scripture on this? And it became more of a sociological response to what was happening in, in our society, rather than actually what's the, what's the Bible saying about it? And so for Jonathan's perspective, was what then happened was, rather than looking for qualified, gifted women to lead, it just became... Actually, the door's just open because we haven't really got a conviction about a biblical conviction on what the qualification is for this. We just know that society's moved. And so this morning, I want to seek in a very short amount of time to show you a biblical conviction by t- tackling the t- toughest verse, the cornerstone verse on, that's used often for the limitation of women, okay? And I want to unpack it because I'm not convinced that we've understood it in what Paul wanted to say. So, going to that cornerstone verse then, is 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we'll start at verse 8. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Therefore, I want the men everywhere to be pr- to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Now this is the cornerstone verse that is often used as a 
limitation for women. In verse 11 it says, A woman, or a wife, should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness, and propriety, or with propriety. So this is the verse that is the cornerstone verse that is often used for the limitation of women and why particularly women wouldn't speak on a Sunday morning. So I want to unpack this verse. The whole argument of this particular scripture, and we're going to do some Bible study, okay? Alright? We're going to do some Bible study. But this particular verse hinges on the meaning of the word authority. The woman should learn in quietness with full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority. And so we have to understand that most of us are reading an English translation of the Bible, and the Bible was written in ancient Greek. So we've got a translation of the Bible. And so to understand what this word authority means, we've got to go back to the Greek language. And for that, I've, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I've read um, a whole host of arguments right across the board for where it would be permissive to uh, let women teach, and um, it would be... Um, um, put as a limitation. So I've read a lot of stuff on it, and it hinges on this word authority. Now, this particular word authority in the Greek, and I'm going to struggle to pronounce it, is authoritain. Okay? So it's a particular Greek word. Now, what's interesting about that particular Greek word, authoritain, it's only used once in the whole of the New Testament. Okay? So Paul has lots of different words he can use for authority. In fact, there are 12 Greek words he can choose to use for authority. And the one he normally uses is a different Greek word, is excusia, excusia and that's used 102 times in, in the New Testament. So you've got this particular passage here that uses one particular Greek word. He has 12 he can use. He uses one particular one 102 times in the New Testament. So Paul, and we know he is a scholar of scholars, we know he sat at the feast of Gamaliel, one of the great high priests, and he was taught, and he's a great linguist and a great user of language, and we know he was very intentional about the language that he chose. So if he had wanted to just talk about ordinary, everyday authority, he had another word he could have chosen if he wanted that to be the case. So he had, must have had something in mind other than just normal exercise of authority by choosing that particular word. He must have wanted to say something other than just, I do not permit a woman per se to have any authority over a man. He's chosen a very particular word. So what did that word mean then? Because that's the other thing we have to say, is the Bible was written at a particular time to a particular people for a particular reason. So we need to come back and say, what did the word that he chose, authoritarian, what did it mean to his listeners at the time? And uh, it basically says this, many scholars argue that there is no first century justification for translating authoritarian as to exercise authority. That's not how the word was used or understood then. 
So uh, the, the scholars argue that every time this word authoritarian is used in a relationship between a person and a person, it's used as a negative use of authority. Every time that particular word is used, it's not talking about a positive use of authority, it's talking about a very specific negative use of authority. And that negative use of authority was to dominate, to control, to intimidate. That's what authority means when it's in the dynamic of a person to a person. I do not permit a person to dominate, to control, or to intimidate. And so what we need to understand then is what, where were these people being written to? Where did they live? They lived in Ephesus. And if you read Acts 19, you can read about the riot in Ephesus. You can read about the Holy Spirit came upon, I think, the 12 believers. They were baptised in the Holy Spirit. They then went into that city, and that city was turned upside down by Paul and a whole host of believers. To such an extent that the trade that the city worked on was making statues of Artemis, and people were not buying those statues anymore because they were loving and worshipping Jesus Christ and had no need of those statues. So the whole of Ephesus was really built around goddess worship, Diana, Artemis. That was what their culture was. And the culture believed that, that women were the author, the source of men. That was what the goddess worship would say, that actually humanity, mankind, comes from the goddess. And so Ephesus as a society, as a culture, would have elevated the feminine over the masculine. That was what the city was based on, that was what the culture was based on. And so what you then got is men and women coming to know the Lord Jesus. And how many of you know you don't just get rid of all your culture that's negative all in one go? Yeah? So there's things in every culture that opens us up to the kingdom and makes the kingdom really easy to us. There are things in our culture that are really negative and opposing the kingdom. And there's some stuff in our culture that's completely negative and it's neither good nor bad. It's just who we are. And so these men and women had been saved in Ephesus, come into the church. And actually the women hadn't shaken off the idea that their source was Artemis. Their source was the goddess. They still were believing actually we are the source, the author of men. And so, Paul is saying that they were teaching that, and propagating that, and communicating that, and their teaching, and what they were bringing was to get the upper hand over men. Okay? Because they brought that in from their culture. That's what they brought in. And so, Paul is saying in these verses, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority, the negative, in order to dominate, to control men in this environment. I do not control a teaching that arises to get the upper hand. Is that okay so far? Yeah. Okay. So a way of translating that verse then would be this. I do not permit a woman to teach with a view to dominate a man, or I do not permit a woman to teach with a view to gain mastery over a man. Okay, so that's, the, that's what he's saying, because he could have said something very different, but he chose a word that says there's a negative, controlling, manipulating, dominating, trying to get the upper hand use of authority, because he used a word that very much means that. 
So it's rooted in a very, very particular context, as is 1 Corinthians 14.34, which is the one we we, we don't actually take any notice of at all. (laughs) I just want to root, just to show you that this is not an isolated speaking into a culture. In 1 Corinthians 14.32, Paul says, or 34, well, I should say two actually, because actually you might find that if you go to, oh yeah, it is one Corinthians, I mean two Corinthians, that's probably why there's only 13 <laughs> chapters that we are hearing. In verse 34 it says, women should remain silent in the churches. Now we don't do that, do we? And so we have to understand that actually that again was speaking into a very specific cultural context of the sexes, okay? And so the Ephesus is the same culture and the same background as the churches that were written to in Ephesians. So it's particular to a very particular context and culture. And so Paul is saying that I do not permit a woman to teach with a view to dominate, constrain, um, control a man, or do I permit a woman to teach with a view to gain mastery over a man? So we've said that already, the whole context was women trying to gain advantage over men in the congregation by teaching in a dictatorial fashion. The men in response in verse 8, therefore I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Okay, so this is what's going on in Ephesus. You've got a war between the men and the women. You've got the women coming in with a goddess culture that they haven't quite shaken off yet, and yet got and they're dictatorially teaching the men, and they've got the men disputing and getting angry. And so Paul is really coming into Ephesus and saying, I want to calm the whole thing down. I want to calm the whole thing down, and I want to get this dispute and I want peace in the church setting. And so we can then say that in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 11, it says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. And quietness there doesn't mean complete silence. It's talking about a godly, peaceable, respectable way. So it's not saying women should be silent as in you must never ever speak, pray or do anything. But rather, when you do, let it be peaceable, let it be respectable, let it be godly. And then in verse 13, it says this, For Adam was formed first. Now I don't believe he's going back to creation order to back up the argument that women should not teach because Adam was made first. Because Adam and Eve were created uniquely to complement one another. And actually the woman is called helper. And who else gets called helper in the Bible? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, I'm going to send the helper. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm going to send the helper. He's going to come alongside you. So actually the woman Eve was a, a woman who was commissioned with Adam to, for this role of subduing and multiplying and bringing the rule of God beyond Eden. And so, he doesn't mean that. He's meaning, I'm addressing the elevation of the feminine over the masculine. That's what he's addressing. Adam was made first. 
Okay, the goddess didn't make Adam. All right, Adam was made first, and it's not to say Adam's more important or more significant or more able to reflect the glory of God than Eve. He's just saying, look, this is what happened. And what you believe about the goddess worship in Ephesus is plainly wrong. Everything doesn't come from Artemis through women. It actually comes from God, who made man first. And it is not about superiority or hierarchy or someone being more important in any environment. And so he's saying, God never intended men and women to function the way they're now functioning in Ephesus. He's coming to address the relational um, problems that are going on there. He never intended um, there to be a superiority or an inferiority either from the position of men or the position of women. That's not the way God intended things to be. And so God's heart was that husbands are not to be harsh, quenching, insensitive, uncaring or passive. That's the heart of God in creation, that actually men are called to be proactive, releasing agents, culture shapers, warriors, bringing things into fruition, making a way where there isn't a way. And he doesn't call men to in any way to be harsh, quenching, but to be releasing agents, to do everything possible to maximise the potential of their wife, to maximise the potential of the wife's calling, and gifting and gracing God. That that's the highest call of the husband to be attentive to the dreams and aspirations and hopes of their wife so that actually they use their God-given role, which is a servant leadership role, to maximise their wife and to maximise their children. And that's the role of elders in a local church as fathers to maximise the potential of the men and women in a local church so that people fulfil their God-given role and God-given calling in Jesus. And Paul is addressing that Adam was made first. Adam's not more important, but Adam does have a particular role. And then he's saying to the women, women respect this servant Christ-like leadership. Be his equal partner, not his boss. Because that's what was happening in the church. I do not permit a woman to teach in a way that makes her feel that she's now the boss of men. And equally, I believe you would use that verse as well for how men would communicate and how men would lead and how men would, would, would preach. Okay, so, are there places then in the Bible where women did teach and women did exercise authority? That's what we're going to finish with. Because Paul can't be saying women never teach because there's loads of places where they did teach and there's loads of places where they did exercise authority. And we will turn to these. It's good to see them. Acts 2.17. I think Tim looked at this verse last week. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit only on the men and your sons will prophesy and your young men will see visions. (laughs) That's what it says in my Bible. No, no. Uh, It says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on... All people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So it's men and women, all flesh. 1 Corinthians 14 26. Corinthians 14. 
26. It says, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, <clears throat> each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. It says, when you come together, each of you has, again, it's a, 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 all of you, men and women, you can, you can, you can speak. 1 Corinthians 11.4 says, in this particular translation, just for every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered, dishonors his head, for every woman who Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Again, that's one of the things we've come to understand. Head covering was for a certain time, for a certain context, to address a certain issue. That's why we don't um, specify now that women need to wear things on their head. But it says, when you come together, every woman who prays or prophesies. Now, prophecy can be authoritative, can't it? It can be the exercise of authority. Because in prophecy, you're not saying... What I'm now bringing is equal to the word of God, because actually that's not what prophecy is. But you are saying, I believe God is saying something. So in the moment you say, I feel God might be saying something, you are exercising authority. Because prophecy isn't just talking about the future, it's talking about a, a thing that might be a revelation of his word, or something that God wants to say into a particular moment. So Paul is then saying... Every woman who prays or prophesies, actually, it can be teaching. Prophecy can have that teaching element to it, it can be instructive. Acts 18.26. Priscilla and Aquila were co-workers of Paul, and they were like the people you sent ahead of, he sent ahead of him to kind of open up things and make, make things um, you know, they would get work and, and establish a work there. He began to speak, this is Apollos, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Now, Apollos, we're going to come to understand, was an Ephesians 4 teacher, okay? So, Apollos is, t Apollos is teaching in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him into their home and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when the Bible puts names in order... It, it's talking about the importance of the person over the other person. If you notice, it was Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. I believe they go to Lystra, Paul uh, heals a guy, and from then on it becomes Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. In other words, of this relationship, the one who's the anointed one, in particular this gift, is actually Paul and Barnabas. And it does say there, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla is the woman, Aquila is the, the man, Apollos is an Ephesians 4 teacher, and she teaches him and explains the way of God more adequately, more accurately. Okay, because I don't think Apollos had understood about the spirit. That's a woman exercising authority to teach a man. Okay, that's another example. Ephesians, 1 Corinthians um, 12 forces everyone, everyone, Priscilla taught, stood out and taught Apollos. Acts 21.9. The next, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed in the house of Philip. Do you remember Philip was one of the ones who served at tables in Acts 6? 
And it says, you know, it's, where are we up to? Acts 21.9. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven who served the tables. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. In other translations, it says he had four unmarried daughters who were prophetesses. Prophetesses. Okay, so he has got four daughters with a great deal of authority who taught and prophesied. We also read in other bits of the Bible quotes from women. Like in Luke 1, we read a whole section that's quoted directly from Mary as she sings about the joy of bearing the Saviour, my soul rejoices. So we're actually reading the Word of God, which is someone penning down what Mary said. So that's a woman in that sense teaching. In John 4, 28, Jesus does something remarkable in two re- for two reasons. First of all, he talks to a um, Samaritan, which um, wasn't really acceptable at the time for a Jew to do. And secondly, he did something even more unacceptable. He talked to a woman on her own at the well in John chapter 4, 28. And he does something even more incredible. He gives the clearest revelation of himself as being the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, to a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman. And so she encounters Jesus at the well, and then she goes in verse 28 of chapter 4. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. In that sense, she becomes a woman who's commissioned to go and teach a whole area about what she's just encountered in terms of Jesus Christ. And finally, Romans 16, which we talked about last week, or Tim talked about last week, of having Paul's apostolic team was around 50% male and 50% female. He has a woman called Phoebe in Romans chapter 16 and verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in uh, Censoria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need of you. She has been my benefactor of many, including me. And there's many who argue that actually Phoebe carried the letter to the Romans, this amazing letter. She carried it to that church as a deacon, as a servant of Paul. And it's a we can kind of conclude that probably if they had any questions about the book of Romans, you're probably going to ask the person who carried it from Paul and delivered it. So you can imagine actually that if they had questions on justification by faith, dead to sin, what's Romans 7 all about, that wouldn't have been called Romans 7 then, they're going to ask, ask Phoebe about that. So what are we saying then? We're saying that in the same way that a man needs to demonstrate gifting and calling and a qualification from the Lord to be a person who is to communicate his word in mode preaching or teaching, what we're saying is our biblical conviction is from these passages that we're fully convinced that the Bible does not um, place a cornerstone of limitation on women where they cannot be gifted, called and anointed by God to preach and teach and so that actually that is permissible on a Sunday morning from the conviction of scripture so (coughs) 
Now, you might, there might be some of you think, I've got questions about that, because I think actually that we all go on a journey on looking at these things. Love to have conversations, questions, observations, asking for clarity. We've written a paper on it, you might want to read that paper so you can see the arguments in more detail. We really want to chat and, and, and serve and help um, in any way we possibly can to it, um, if you've got particular questions or it troubles you in any way whatsoever. I, I personally think it's a very exciting thing. Uh, I think it's a, it's a strengthening thing. And I think hopefully you can see from those verses, it was really how the early church functioned and understood men and women. That actually in Jesus Christ there's a redemption that took place, that actually broke the curse of Genesis 3. That actually women didn't have to grasp to strive for something. Uh, and men actually can be who they were meant to be, which is pro proactive, releasing agents of women. And, and actually it breaks, hopefully over time, it breaks the curse of people feeling the only way I can be anybody is I've got to grapple. And hopefully that then breaks the, the, the need actually, which sometimes comes out of frustration or out of injustice, where sometimes maybe things can be, women feel I've got to dominate, I've got to be harsh because that's the only power I've got. But actually in Jesus Christ that gets broken so that the sexes, the men and the women can function in a way that's wonderfully complementary and wonderfully empowering of both of them. Can I to stand? You know, I just want to speak grace to any who, in your home, that's, that's not what you're enjoying right now. And, and just to, men or women, just to commission you to love, and to commission you to love husband or to love your wife, and to work towards connecting to them in every way you possibly can. And even where maybe you're in situations where you think, actually, what I'm living in right now isn't reflecting the biblical design. Just... Holy Spirit just wants to give you the strength and the grace to carry on loving and um, to carry on working to connect and to not put up barriers and walls that just build total disconnection and an inability for communication and love. And at the same time, with wisdom, knowing what boundaries need to be placed and what safety needs to be in place. But just to have a heart that says, I, I choose love. I choose forgiveness, I choose grace, I choose to work towards connection rather than distance, while at the same time getting wisdom and counsel about what do godly boundaries mean. Because to love doesn't mean to be a doormat, it doesn't mean to be treated as rubbish or as nothing, and yet at the same time to love and to forgive. I mean, that's a very complicated thing to put in a couple of sentences, but just sometimes these things can leave people feeling this is not my environment and this is not my circumstances and it's hard for me. And we just want to say we acknowledge that, that and that if you need grace or chatting to or, or prayer just to see us or counsel or wisdom, we'd love to stand with you and walk with you. Yeah, Jesus, we want to thank you for what you've done in the cross. We want to thank you for the glory of the church. 
We want to thank you that it's the place that we should be modelling how men and women can work together in harmony and empowerment, complementing one another. And we do pray as a local church that we all excel in this, in Jesus' name. And we pray that, God, we would be an excelling place of honour and love to one another. We pray that we would model being able to receive from one another, that a woman could receive from a man and a man from a woman. We pray, God, cause us to be those who live out the bounty of the finished work of the cross. That Paul says there's neither no Greek, uh, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, Christ is made, there's no man, there's no woman. In that sense, there's inequality, and yet, God, you've maintained the distinctiveness of men and women and the brilliance that you, of your design that both men and women reflect your glory uniquely and wonderfully, and they, re- they reflect together aspects of your personhood that only men and women can reflect. And we praise you for making us in your image. We thank you for that, Father, and we thank you for the glory of that. And we pray, Holy Spirit, we want to excel in these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just before we finish, I just uh, some of some of you, uh, the women here, may feel that actually this is a call on on your life.